and turn in our Bibles to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 6. On Sunday evenings, we go through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation and kind of have jumped into Matthew as a part of that overview here recently, which we're studying on Sunday evening. And this morning, we want to take a section of what we'll be studying in a larger fashion this evening to study a little more in depth this morning. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles, and just wave, and they'll get a Bible into your hand. And uh, so, and it'll be marked right to where we're studying this morning for your convenience. If you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible a gift from God himself to you today. God wants everyone to own his Bible and to know his Bible. This morning we'll be studying in Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 9. Allow me to read and read along with me in your hearts. In this manner, Jesus declares, in this manner... Therefore, pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you so much for this Sermon on the Mount in its entirety. Thank you for every portion of this instruction for how we're to see life and how we're to live life and how we are able as Christians to represent you in a unique and powerful way in this world and to represent the kingdom of God. And we thank you, Lord, that this instruction heads right into our prayer lives. And, and thank you for this passage and what you want to speak to each one of us in our relationship with you. And we ask that you would give us a supernatural ability by your Holy Spirit to hear your voice as we study this passage this morning. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. I think that after John 3.16, that this particular section of Scripture is probably uh, the best-known passage in all of the Bible. I think that sooner or later, most Christians will ultimately commit it to memory. It's oftentimes referred to as the Lord's Prayer, and we accept that. We're not going to nitpick over that. And it is the Lord's Prayer in the sense that the Lord Jesus gave it to us as his disciples. But in a real sense, it is his prayer in the sense that he could never pray it because within the prayer there is the confession of sin, the asking for forgiveness of sin, and of course Jesus would never need to do that and would never ask for that being sinless himself. The true Lord's Prayer, probably if we wanted to identify it in the Bible, would be in John chapter 17 where we have a record of Jesus' high priestly prayer, this prayer that he prayed to the Father so wonderfully, beautifully, powerfully, and, and the content incredible on that night before his uh, crucifixion. This prayer is not Jesus' prayer for himself. This prayer is for us 
as his disciples, as his followers. I want you to notice in verse 9 that phrase, in this manner. In this manner, therefore, pray. Jesus is not commanding that we only pray this prayer when we pray, or that we pray this prayer over and over and over and over again, uh, wrote just as it's written in here, and that it constitutes kind of the entirety of our prayer life. The danger would be is if this was the only words we ever prayed and thought, okay, this is what Jesus is saying, this is the only thing we pray to the Father, then the temptation would be for it to become kind of a vain repetition, which he forbids in verse 7. It would be hard to keep the prayer meaningful and without it being something that we just kind of race through uh, kind of thoughtlessly. Um, I don't know how many of you have spent time in the Roman Catholic Church, maybe growing up, or maybe you're still a part of the church and uh, visiting with us today. But my mother, on her spiritual search, um, she did take us for a while uh, to the Roman Catholic Church um, that was right across the alley from our house growing up. And ultimately, we ended up in a what was a Plymouth Brethren Church within in the city of, of uh, Napa. But I remember very distinctly the year or two of practicing Roman Catholicism and First Communion and the preparation for all of that. And, but I really remember that confessional kind of creeped me out a little bit as a kid, got to tell you that. And you go into this room and it's this dark little thing and you're just sitting there waiting uh, for the thing to slide. And there it slides open and there he is. And you're going to confess your sins to him. And, um, you know, at that age I didn't have a lot of sins, at least that I was conscious of or anything like that. And so I didn't want to waste his time. So I made sins up. I just... Here I am, I'm, I'm in a confessional and I'm lying to the priests. I mean, you did the same thing. You know you. some of you did the same thing. Or you didn't tell them all of the sins. So I would say different things and that all, and then they'd say, you know, okay, ten Our Fathers and five Hail Marys. And I would go to the front of the church and I could say those like grease lightning. I mean, I could say them in one sentence, all ten of the... Our Fathers and all five of the Hail Marys, and then take my next breath. I never gave a thought at all to what I was saying or what the prayer was about. And I think a lot of times people's experience with this Lord's Prayer, this section of instruction on prayer is kind of in that category. And sometimes we need to just slow down and realize an awful lot is being said in this prayer. And there's an awful lot of valuable instruction in there. It's a model for prayer. It's a pattern for prayer. And in this prayer, Jesus gives us seven things that he knows that we need to pray to the Father on a daily basis. And more than on a daily basis, to pray to the Father in the morning, at the beginning of every single day. We are certainly free to add whatever we want to this list, but it appears to me that these seven things are a must. We have a need to pray these things to God and to process these seven things with God on a daily basis. Jesus declared in verse 8, 
Therefore, do not be like them, those that just pray. It was a bunch of words with the idea of that that counts somehow with God. He said, therefore, do not be like them, for your Father knows the things that you have need of before you ask him. Well, why are we praying if he already knows ahead of time what our needs are? Because prayer isn't for him supremely. Prayer is for us supremely. And I want you to think about that statement of Jesus. For your Father knows the things that you have need of before you ask him. Again, in in other words, this prayer isn't given to us supremely for the purpose of informing God or reminding God concerning the condition of our lives and then to make requests of him accordingly. This prayer is given to us not for his sake, but because we have a need to pray these things on a daily basis again, uh, even each morning as we begin the day. So the prayer isn't for God's benefit. It's for our benefit. Again, seven things that God knows we need to talk to him about at the start of every day. And I think it's a wonderful way to think about uh, this particular prayer. I want you to notice a couple of odds and ends. They're important odds and ends related to the prayer before we get into the seven items in earnest. Um, first, it's a daily prayer. And we know that from verse 11 where Jesus instructs us that we're to pray, give us this day our daily bread. So it's a daily prayer, but it is also a morning prayer. It is a prayer for asking God and meeting with God as the day is about to unfold. The prayer is clearly not something that's intended to be prayed, though it could be, but not intended supremely to be prayed in the evening where the day we're looking at it in our rearview mirror, then ahead of the day, we're looking ahead at the day in front of us and asking him to supply us with our uh, daily bread. And I think one of the reasons that it's best to have our devotional time, which includes prayer to God, uh, in the morning each day as opposed to the evening, is that in the morning the day is still in front of us. It's not behind us. The prayer pre- uh, prepares us to be proactive concerning the day that we're heading into and not looking back on it as opposed to being uh, retroactive. When he talks there a little bit later in verse 13, and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. The idea is I'm beginning a day. I'm heading out into a world that's going to be full of temptation and spiritual warfare. How much temptation and spiritual warfare am I going to face? You can a little bit, but it's much smaller by comparison. Well, how much trouble am I going to get into falling asleep now if I say this prayer kind of at the end of the day? So it's intended to be something that is, uh, is prayed at the start uh, of the day. Second to notice here is having a model for prayer that Jesus gives us here, a pattern for it, in no way limits the involvement of the Holy Spirit in our prayer life. Sometimes you can look at this and say, well, where's the Holy Spirit fitting in this whole thing? This is, this is just going to become rote. I mean, I'm going to memorize this thing and I'm going to have to fight every day to, you know, give significant meaning to the various lines of, of this particular prayer. But that's not how it works. 
It is the Holy Spirit becomes involved, and, and as this prayer is prayed, he becomes involved, he engages in it, and these things that we're praying to God kind of primes the pump for the Holy Spirit, then leading us and directing us in a wide variety of things related to uh, prayer. I think it's important too. remember that the, our prayer life isn't limited to the seven things that are spoken of here. Uh, the Holy Spirit can take us a lot of different ways uh, in, in other uh, world of other things that he would desire to add to this uh, prayer. And so these are the things we have a need to be aware of on a daily basis. But boy, there's a lot of life in that prayer. For instance, when we pray, our Father. And you notice in the prayer, all of the personal pronouns are plural. All of them. Our Father, not my Father. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give me this day. It doesn't say that. It says us. Give us this day our, not my, daily bread. Every personal pronoun is in the plural in that particular uh, prayer. There's not an I, me, or my in the entire prayer. And the idea is so that when we pray this prayer, we are not only praying for ourselves, we're doing that, but when we pray this prayer with these plural pronouns, we are also interceding for the rest of the body of Christ all around the world. And when they pray this prayer to the Lord, they are then also interceding for us. So when I pray or you pray and we say, Our Father, there's this recognition within our hearts that He is my Heavenly Father, but I share my Heavenly Father with a whole family of people who are all around the world. He's not just my Father, He is our Father. And then it reminds me to begin to pray for Portions and other people that make up the body of Christ all around the world. And maybe as you say, our Father, and we think about who we share our Heavenly Father with, He begins to put, bring names into our minds. For me, He'll, he'll consistently bring K.P. O'Hannon to my mind, Gospel for Asia to my mind, my friend Gail Irwin to my mind. He'll bring the missionaries within the church to my mind, Ken and Rita Marr and the Naritas and the Becks and so forth. They come into my mind and I begin to think about all of these people I share my Father with all around the world. The Holy Spirit brings these folks to mind and I begin to intercede for them related to uh, their life and I thank the Lord for them and I ask the Lord to bless them that day. And then the interesting thing about it is tomorrow you pray, Our Father which art in heaven, if this is used as a model, and the Holy Spirit will bring four completely different names to your mind. So it's alive. It isn't something that's just dead. The Holy Spirit involves himself in it and then takes us all kinds of places. For instance, when we pray, give us this day our daily bread, and the Holy Spirit might cause that plural pronoun, give us this day our daily bread, to remind us uh, to pray for Christians in other parts of the world where and in our own community where they're facing hunger or food shortages or they've got these despots that are ruling over them and food is very difficult to get 
and the Holy Spirit brings them to our mind and we begin to pray for Christians in the Sudan, Christians in Somalia, Christians in Syria, Christians all around the world and the Holy Spirit can bring all of that to our minds. In the whole world there's Christians that are in this kind of condition and we begin to intercede mightily for them. We pray to God and we ask God for our own forgiveness of our sins. We ask uh, we then uh, take as a part of this prayer and as an act of our will, forgive others that have sinned against us. And as we're thinking about that and we're receiving that related to our own lives, we think about somebody else in our family or another member of the body of Christ or someone that we've heard about where a great sin, a grievous sin has been committed against them. They're going to be tempted to bog down into bitterness for the rest of their life. And we say, Lord, give them the capacity to forgive in this situation. And, and then others where they're asking for the forgiveness of their sins, where they have taken and sinned against somebody else, and it's going to be a sin that's going to be tough for them to get over, and then to begin to intercede for them out of kind of our private knowledge of people's lives and, and, and ask them to, Lord, just help them to walk in the fullness of your forgiveness and so forth. And the Holy Spirit just takes us in a lot of different places. And as we just follow the leading of the Holy Spirit, as we pray regarding each of these areas, the prayer is different every single day. I mean, it's alive, it's current, it's new. And the prayer itself is very compact. It's very, very short. Uh, 71 words in, in how it's translated in the New King James. You can pray it in less than a minute. But I think under the direction of the Holy Spirit, those 71 words cover a lot of ground. There is enough in those 70 words to cause a person to pray for hours without ever running out of things to say or without ever repeating ourselves. It's a compact, weighty prayer that is just waiting to go out and explode in all directions by the Holy Spirit within uh, our lives. Let me also say that there's nothing wrong with praying the prayer just as it is. All that, all that Jesus wants us to do when we do that, though, is to pray with meaning, to mean what, mean what it is that we're saying, to think about what we're saying. Sometimes we can find ourselves on the go. The morning didn't work out the way, you know, and you thought, and here the children are throwing up all over the place or whatever kind of a deal, you know, how life is. And, and okay, so I'm not going to get this. And a person can go in and they can pray this prayer with absolute meaning to the Lord. And it's significant to the Lord and very significant to the person who is praying. But the main thing is these things need to be lifted up to the Lord on a daily basis. Well, let's look at the prayer itself. These seven things that the Lord knows we need to talk with him about every single morning. The prayer begins, Our Father in heaven. And here we have the daily reminder that we are not alone in this world. That we have a Father who is in heaven. And that we belong to a family under this Father, who is all around the world. We have a heavenly Father. If I don't have another friend in the world, if I don't have another person in the whole world who knows me or cares about me, I have a heavenly Father who does. We are never alone. 
I think about that newer worship song that we've been singing recently. And the song is entitled, I Am Not Alone. And I know how that song hits me. I know how it hits you. I can feel the impact of the Holy Spirit through it within the room as we're worshiping the Lord. What a comfort it is. What an encouragement it is. What a strengthening influence it is just to know and to say those words that I am not alone. Now, Christianity is a relationship with God, and Jesus wants us to have a daily reminder that we have a heavenly Father and to be reminded of his commitment to the relationship that he has with us, his commitment to being the heavenly Father that he knows that we need him to be. And so we begin the day, Our Father, Abba Father, good morning, Abba Father, Daddy Father. So those of you who are married, I trust you greet your spouse at some point in the morning. Most of us greet our spouse pretty quickly, I assume. So I wake up and immediately, if Karen is awake, and most of the time she is, I say, good morning, Karen, or good morning, some gooey name that I don't have to give <laughs> to you in front of all of that. Am I red? Makeup, makeup. But what happens? We say good morning and the conversation begins. The conversation begins. And it's the same thing with our Heavenly Father. We acknowledge Him, we say good morning to Him, and now the conversation begins and continues through the rest of the day. Otherwise, it might not ever happen. Might not happen at 10 o'clock, might not happen at 2 o'clock, may not happen at 7 o'clock, may never happen through the whole day. But this starts the conversation with God. And since Christianity is a relationship with God, it's very important to start the conversation. And so we begin the conversation. Another thing that this part of the prayer, our Father, which art in heaven does, is that it lifts my head. David wrote in one of his famous psalms that the Lord is the lifter of our heads. Well, he said that about God in the Old Covenant. Well, that's an inferior covenant. Well, how is God the lifter of our heads in the New Testament? Does it every morning through the prayer. Our Father, which art in heaven, and my head is lifted immediately above all of my problems, all of my circumstances, the whole mess that the world is in. He lifts my head above it. The world's a mess that we're in. Life is messy, got trials, difficulties, all kinds of things going on inside of our lives, circumstances. Sometimes we talk about, say, hey, how are you doing? And the person will say, pretty good under the circumstances. Well, we can find ourselves under the circumstances really fast in life. And we need, especially the intensity of life that we live today. You think about thousands of years ago, they had no newspaper, they had no... They didn't know what was going on a village over on a daily basis. We know if a squirrel gets hit in Moscow. I mean, we, we got, this world is so intense for us. So many circumstances that we're aware of, more than I think is healthy for us. And so we can find ourselves very quickly living completely under the circumstances of life. And at least once a day... 
to begin the day, there is the importance of saying, Our Father, which art in heaven, like it in the old King James. And our head is lifted above the circumstances of this life onto eternity, onto heaven, onto the things that really matter, the things that are going to be forever. Notice that he goes on, Jesus does in his instruction, to declare, hallowed be thy name. And so here is where we spend some time offering praise and worship to God as a part of our prayer life. We worship him, we praise him here, Jesus is teaching us, not supremely for what he gives us or uh, something that he's going to do for us, but here is the praising and worshiping of the Lord for who he is and what he is. And that's what Jesus is referring to when he says to to pray out, uh, uh, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And when he speaks of the Father's name, he says, in essence, we are to worship God for his name, for his character. In that ancient culture, a person's name represented their their character. That's what came into your mind. When a person's name was spoken, then you would think of the person in their character. Today, our culture is quite a bit different. This Western culture, we put together a collection of from the alphabet and we attach a name to our children. It can be a name that is uh, the name of a, a family member that we love or just a name that we like. And so, all right, we're going to name our child this. And it's very convenient to give them a name so that if we have to uh, call for them for dinner amongst all the other kids in the neighborhood, they will recognize their name and come to dinner. Or if the teacher calls roll in their first day in school, they will have a name to respond to. So it becomes a means of identification, but not a deep means of identification Why? um the way that it was in the Old Testament. Today it's kind of something that's attached to us to um, differentiate us from the other 7 billion people on the earth. When they attached names to children in the Old Testament, it was intended that those children would grow up into the character of their name. And so great names were given to children with the idea that they will one day become this. We think about examples of this in the Old Testament. For instance, when God kind of renamed Abraham, Abraham, the name Abraham means the father of many nations. And so this was his character. This was who he was. This is what God had brought him into human history to be. And so God named him in that way. Jacob, one of the patriarchs, was named heel catcher because he was holding on to his brother's heel as the second born among twins. And so they named him just who and what he was. God later renamed him Israel. And Israel means ruled by God or governed by God because that was now going to characterize his life. Probably the greatest example of it in the Bible is Jesus' name. And he was named after his mission. Jesus' name means Jehovah is salvation because he was born into this world to provide us with salvation. So the idea is when we praise the Lord for his name... We are praising him for his nature. 
We praise you, Lord, for your nature. We praise you for who you are. We praise you for what we are. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your power. We thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your patience in our life. We thank you for your forgiveness. Whatever comes on our heart, and that can change by the day in terms of what we're being overwhelmed with about God and his nature at the moment, we just begin to praise him and worship him for some aspect of his character, including his holiness. And that's what the word hallowed means. Hallowed be your name. Worship being lifted up to him for the holiness of his name. And holiness means to be separated or to be different. And we praise God for how he is different in our life than everybody else is in our life. Again, he loves in a way that only he can love. He is forgiving in a way that only he is forgiving and so forth. So just whatever is on our heart, we think about him what's going on in our lives, and we just begin to praise him for who he he is and for his nature. Someone might wonder, well, you know, how much time should I give this part of my prayer, uh, this part of, of the prayer, to my prayer time in the morning? And I think it's a good idea to do it until we are so lost in the greatness of God that we no longer are seeing God in the light of our problems, but seeing our problems in the light of God. And sometimes, without spending some time worshiping the Lord, I remember my youngest daughter, and when uh, we were downtown on 10th and F, it's going to be a great 30-year celebration, by the way, coming up. But we were downtown, and one of the songs that the kids were learning in that classroom is, My God is so, you know, great, so big and so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do. And she would pray that like she was like in an army of some kind, and her face red and animated by it, and, and, uh, and just worshiping the Lord and the greatness of God. And again, the importance of worshiping and spending time in that place until I see him and recognize him as being greater than every problem I have in my life, every worry that I have in my life, every need that I have in my life. And it will happen. It will happen. We've already experienced it this morning in church. We come into church, and Mike and the team begins to lead us in worship, and we're worried about this relationship, and we're worried about this bill, and we're worried about what's happening over here, and we're worried about this thing that's going on here. It's got us all consumed. We're under the circumstances. We're viewing this thing as bigger than our God. Oh, we would never say that, but experientially, that's where we are. That's where we're living. And then somewhere, song number one, song number two, song number three, all of a sudden we get traction. And now we realize how big God is, how great God is, and pretty soon all of those problems get lost in the majesty of who he is and what he is. And it's real. And God knows that we need to experience that on a daily basis. And worship is a part of 
of that. We think about how often we see the very thing modeled in the Psalms. David begins his psalm. He is under the circumstances. Somebody's saying something about him. Somebody's trying to overthrow him. Somebody hates him because he's a lover of God. All these things are happening. He begins the psalm. And he's under the circumstances, and he starts to talk about it to God, and he begins to talk about it more to God. And then the next thing you know, he's worshiping God, and he's praising God, and how big God is, and God is bigger than his enemies, and God is bigger than his needs. And then the whole psalm ends up closing in this triumphant, you know, uh, declaration of faith and praise to God. And all that has happened in his life is exactly what Jesus is saying and recognizes needs to happen in our lives on a daily basis. You say, I'll be there for hours. No, not necessarily. Most of the Psalms, you see, David got from here to there pretty quickly on things. But whatever the time takes for this thing to get flipped where I don't see God in the light of the greatness of my problems, I see my problems in the light of the greatness of God. Jesus knows that needs to happen in our lives on a daily basis, or we will live under our circumstances, not just for a day, but for weeks and months and years. And there are so many Christians who do that. They never have this as a part of their life. Worship is never playing in their car, never a part of their private life, never a part of their daily life. And they live very far from the fullness that Christ wants. That's why it's seven things that we need to, to have happen in our lives in prayer between us and God. And this is one of those uh, things. And so as we have that consciousness, that fresh consciousness of the greatness of our Heavenly Father, then... It allows us later in the prayer to then speak confidently to him about my needs in life, my daily bread, to speak to him confidently about the temptations I'm going to face in life, the um, spiritual warfare that I find myself in. If I don't understand God to be as great as he is, this is why it happens. this happens so early in the prayer. If I skip this and I just go to my daily bread and my bills and the car breaking down and the temptations that I'm facing and the spiritual warfare, that I'm facing, then I don't, I'm, I'm then bringing these things to a God that I don't have a fresh consciousness of how great he is. So there's a significance to the order in which Jesus lays things out. And so we ask ourselves, what problem do we have in our lives that is greater than God? And of course, the answer is no. But we forget it. And we forget that if you're like me on a daily basis. And so I need a daily reminder of it at the start of each day. He goes on and he says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth, even as it is in heaven. And here is the reminder that one day Jesus is going to return at his second coming, as he promised, and he is going to establish his kingdom on this earth. And the next step, in the prophetic uh, series of events in terms of that progression occurring is the rapture of the church where Jesus returns and then receives us up into heaven and then the seven-year tribulation period and then he comes back at his uh, second coming. And this prayer reminds us every single day that Jesus is coming back to rapture the church and it might be today. I have been praying this prayer 
in Matthew chapter 6 since 1980 when I got saved. And as the Lord is my witness, if you talk about the need to pray it every day, you think that after all of these years, how many years? Don't count them. It's a lot of years. After all of these years, it'd be like, okay, um, you know, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. As the Lord is my witness, I am as in need of praying that today as I was yesterday. Again, I look at the world, the mess that it's in, it's all heaping up on top of me. I mean, I want to carry all the problems of everybody in their life, the problems of the world, all of these things. And then as I look at uh, problems in the world that are significant, they're systemic, they're foundational, they're moral problems, they're spiritual problems. I see where I know where all of this kind of thing leads biblically. So all of this kind of stuff is going on, and then I just need a daily reminder, Jesus is coming back, just as we sang, and it might be today. Because <gasps> it could be today. And it brings a perspective into my life that I need on a daily basis. It reminds me, this is not my home as a Christian. Every 24 hours, I re-entrench here. And it reminds me, this is not home for you. You're a stranger. You're a pilgrim just passing through this, this world. It reminds me that the world isn't going to go on as it is going on today indefinitely, that Jesus is going to come back and that this world isn't running out of control, but that it is headed toward God's uh, God-appointed end. And all these wonderful things happen in praying this prayer to the Lord. And then with it, there's this fresh surrender then to the will of God for the coming day, for God to use my life for the advancement of the kingdom of God and, and to move forward the prophetic picture through my life in the world that day. Verse 11, give us this day our daily bread. And this is the acknowledgement of the fact that God is our provider, that he is the one that sustains us. He is our security in life. We have to be reminded of that on a daily basis. And this does remind us uh, of that, acknowledging him as our provider, asking him to provide us with our food for the day. That is the necessities of life for today. If, you are, if, if a person is a Christian in a part of the world, and this is much of the world today, just disregard that stuff. We're having some sound problems today. But the Holy Spirit's bigger than all of that. So there's a whole section of the body of Christ that wakes up around the, the world. And when they look and they pray, give us this day our daily bread, they are asking God to supply them that day with the ability to do the job, to do the work that's going to be necessary to earn the money, to then buy the food, to eat that day, and would God provide it. And that's, that's a place that a good portion of Christians around the world are in, and much of the world is, is in. For us, most of us aren't in that place. So even if our, we think our cupboards are kind of uh, almost bare or the refrigerator is bare, if we had to, we could probably live several days off of what's up there. You know, the spam that we forgot about was tucked away there and the three cans of tuna fish and the stuff that sometimes expires on us, we could make it go. But even though we have food, even though 
in a technical sense, we don't need God to provide us with the daily bread because it's already in the cupboard, it's already in the refrigerator. But for us, it's the recognition that everything that we're going to eat this day, today, He has provided it to us. This meal is a miracle. Whether He provides it that day or He provides it some other day and it's in front of me, this is a miracle of God. My God has supplied this meal to me. And it, rem- it keeps me in this place of remembering and realizing and staying conscious of the fact that my security in life is God. I, all I need is a piggy bank over here with two quarters of it, two quarters inside of it, and now I've got something that is going to fight with me in my mind for the fact that God is the sole security in my life. And that goofy. And so, so, this takes me and brings me back to a place where I acknowledge to God that my security in life, that I am going to have food on the table today and tomorrow, is because you are going to supply it. And it is that confession to him. It honors him in that way. But for us, it reminds us that no matter what else we do or we don't have in life, that he is our security, he is our provider, and he is going to provide us with our necessities. So the daily bread doesn't just talk about food, though it talks about that most specifically, but it speaks about lifting up other things that are daily needs in our life. Clothing is a daily need. A shelter is a daily need. And all of these other things that we need sometimes to get by in life in the modern age and all, keep the car running, whatever it might be, and lifting these things up uh, to the Lord. And it just reminds us, yes, I have maybe more than I need in terms of clothing and food right now, but I refuse to count those things as a source of security in my life God is my security, and I need to be reminded of that on a daily basis. I need to confess it on a daily basis in that way. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. This includes two things. Number one, me asking God for the forgiveness of my sins. That's a daily prayer. So that means I must sin on a daily basis. My wife wouldn't believe it. My mother certainly wouldn't believe it. Now, they both would believe it. But the fact of the matter is, this being a daily prayer, the fact that we have to ask God for forgiveness of our sins indicates that we sin on a daily basis. There's a doctrine in the church called uh, sinless perfection, the idea that you can reach a place of spirituality as a Christian in which you no longer sin. Well, I don't know. They probably have an edited version of the Lord's Prayer for what they pray. But uh, Jesus doesn't seem to be sold on it, so he has us asking for forgiveness for sins on a daily basis. Because when we recognize what sin is, it is, means to miss the mark, it's to be less than perfect in what we say, what we do, what we think, what we feel, how we conduct ourselves. It is to know to do good and not to do it. That's sin. It is to be less than perfect, to be less than like Christ. 
All of us are less than like Christ on a daily basis. And so we go to God and we ask for the forgiveness of our sins to him. We name those sins. We ask him to forgive us and we receive that forgiveness. So we are not carrying the guilt and the condemnation of our sins days and weeks and months and even years forward in our life. It gets handled on a daily basis. But the second part is not only us confessing our sin to God and receiving his forgiveness, but then also extending forgiveness to other people on a daily basis. Ah, that's the harder part of the verse right there. And what it tells us is that as imperfect as we are on a daily basis, as hard as we might try not to be, people are going to be less than perfect in our lives. They are going to sin against us on a daily basis because we're going to need to forgive them on a daily basis. I don't know why I'm so horrified when people sin against me. They sin against me. Did you hear what they said? Did you see what they just did to me? And if God won't listen to me, whimper, I'll, I'll find somebody, some friend, And I'm shocked by it. And we become sometimes these little touchy baby Christians when Jesus warned us. People are going to be as in need of our forgiveness on a daily basis as we are in need of God's forgiveness on a daily basis. And when we pray this to the Lord, it gives us a fresh start every day in this regard. And when we go out of our homes or wherever we head out into life and we have confessed our sin to God, asked for his forgiveness, there's the recognition now that I'm going to go out into a world that is filled with sinners and I shouldn't have a different expectation than that of them. And so I take that, that consciousness of my own sin out in, in God forgiving me out the door with me And it clothes me with a needed humility toward other people and grace. I realize, as the old saying goes, that I am just one beggar telling other beggars where to find bread, so to speak. Then he goes on and he talks about, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from uh, the evil one. And here's the daily recognition that we're all going to face temptation. Every one of us is going to be. Every one of us has a temptation. There's one, two, three, four sins in our life on, at any given time that could take us out and destroy our Christian witness. And we wake up every day in this world and those temptations wake up to come against us once again. So we all face temptation on a daily basis. We all face spiritual warfare on a daily basis. Satan is going to oppose us, our lives. He's going to try and trap us and pull us into sin, move us away from God's call upon our lives, his purposes for our lives. We begin the day with the recognition that this is going to be a part of our day and to ask God to help us in that area. So if you sit and you look and say, I don't know why this thing, this temptation is so big to me right now, but for the last six weeks it has. Talk with God every day about that temptation before you head out the door. And if there's five of them, talk to God about all five of them. And then when you head out the door, then when the temptation comes in life, you're prepared for it. 
the temptation comes up and you think to yourself, God and I already talked about you. No. You know, when you see Joseph in the Old Testament, 17 years old, hunk of a guy, I mean, good-looking face, good-looking body, everything. Potiphar's wife's trying to seduce him, pulls his robe off and makes herself available to him. What did Joseph do? He ran. And Joseph's decision is decisive. You never get the sense that Joseph was like, okay, what do I do now? He knew exactly what to do. It was already worked out between him and God before the temptation ever came. And he acted on it at that moment. And it's important for us to do the same. You deal with alcohol, then before the day begins and all, when I'm going to drive home from work, I'm not going to drive past the bar that I used to spend all that time in. I'm going to drive a different way home. Whatever needs to be set up, it gets set up. But there's that recognition. This is coming. This is in my future today. I've discussed it with God, and I am ready as a result to meet that temptation and that spiritual uh, warfare. And then finally it closes with, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And so here we have the recognition that God is able to wonderfully answer the prayer that um, Jesus has just instructed us to pray. And that doxology that closes the prayer, it communicates that, uh, that as the absolute sovereign king over all creation, that God has the authority to answer our prayers without a need to consult anyone else. It communicates to us he has the power to answer every prayer that we have asked of him. And finally, that he then deserves all of the glory in our lives when he does so. And so, a recap. Seven things that Jesus knows that we as his disciples need to talk about to God on a daily basis. The reminder that we're not alone in this world. We have a Father in heaven. Allowing him to freshly overwhelm us with his greatness as we worship and praise him. Reminder that Jesus is coming back soon, and it might be today. Acknowledging him as our provider and the source of our security in life. Entering into the day freshly forgiven by God and freshly forgiving of others. Prepared and strengthened for coming temptation and spiritual warfare of the day. And then closing with an expression of our faith and his ability to answer every prayer that we have lifted up to him. Tough to think of a better way to begin the day. Wonderful instruction. And I think every one of us recognizes from our own experience with God the wisdom of Jesus in putting those seven things together for us in prayer. Let's stand together and we'll pray now. Jesus, you think of everything. Who could know us? Who could know us this well except you? Who could know us this well except our Creator? Thank you that you recognize all of the things that we fight against and through on a daily basis as strangers and pilgrims so far away from home, Lord, making our way to heaven. And you know just what we need to talk 
to our Heavenly Father about on a daily basis. And thank you for telling us this. In a thousand years, we could have never discovered by experience what you have put together for us. And we thank you that you have saved us that and put it so beautifully right before us. Now we ask that you take us by the hand, Lord, in our own prayer life with our Heavenly Father and that you would lead us into the full beauty and grace and freedom and joy and life that is found in this prayer characterizing our devotional life. And we ask it of you in your name, in Jesus' name. Amen. If you